so much. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And um, I can say finally, I guess, finally, uh, to verses 13 and 14. I mentioned uh, earlier that verses 3 through 14 are really the first major section of uh, the book of Ephesians. In the Greek, they are one long sentence. And so, uh, Paul may be kind of out of breath as he's finally gotten to the, the end of this long, wonderful, beautiful statement of the, the glory of salvation in these verses. And we're going to uh, tie it all together, hopefully, this morning, looking at verses 13 and 14. Let us read these verses. This is God's Word. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, the praise of His glory. And that is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we love You and we love Your Word. And we pray this morning now that You would speak to our hearts through it. It is so rich. It is so precious and so special. So much so because it points us to Christ and to the fact that He is our means of salvation points to yourself who gave us salvation points to the Holy Spirit who draws us to salvation may we rejoice today in this great gift, this great blessing that you've given to us we ask it all in Jesus name Amen well as we studied this uh, first section of Ephesians I, I pointed out that one of the ways to look at it really is reflected in my prayer I just offered. That is to look at it in, in terms of the Trinity. To see that each person of the Trinity has an important role to play in our salvation. God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished it. God the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. In verses 3 through 6 we see the work of God the Father. Described in, in verses 7 through 12, it's the work of God the Son that's described. And now in verses 13 and 14, it's the work of God the Holy Spirit. Again, as this section unfolds, here's what we find. God the Father chose some to salvation before the foundation of the world. God the Son died on the cross those whom the Father chose. God the Holy Spirit now gives new hearts to those whom God chose and for whom Jesus died, drawing them to saving faith. Two verses before us this morning give what I see to be a summary of salvation, especially from what I'll call the human perspective. To this point, really, we've been looking at God, or salvation from God's perspective, from the eternal perspective. And salvation was ordained, planned, and accomplished. Now we look at the application of redemption. How the Holy Spirit takes what God the Father planned, what God the Son accomplished, and then applies it 
to our hearts and to our lives. Three things from these two verses I want to hold before you this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. First, we see the means of salvation. Or our salvation becomes a reality in our lives. And here again, we come to the point of the application of salvation. We've seen redemption accomplished, and now we see redemption applied to our hearts. Well, how does salvation come? What is the means of salvation? It comes, of course, in Christ or through Christ. Verse 13 opens with words that should be quite familiar to you by now as we've studied Ephesians chapter 1. And those are the words, in Him or in Christ. The Bible repeatedly says... That salvation comes only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And of course, Jesus himself said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. You know, we live in an increasingly pluralistic society. We're more and more accommodating, more and more tolerant, more and more accepting of others' views. However, when that philosophy of life is applied to salvation, it is a very dangerous proposition. You see, all roads do not lead to heaven. There is only one road that will get you there. And that is the way of Christ. As the old hymn says, All other ground is sinking sand. To say that there is only one way to heaven, that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation, is not bigotry. It's not narrow-mindedness. Folks, it is the truth spoken in love. Do you understand that the most loving, the most caring, the most compassionate thing you can tell anyone is that the only hope they have is to trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. The text is clear. It's in Him that we have salvation. But another means by which that comes is through is through the Word of God. You see, it's in the Bible that we see Jesus the most clearly. Look at verse 13. It says, In Him, or in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When did they come to be in Him? It was after listening to the message of truth to the gospel of salvation. That's why the gospel, folks, is so important. That's why the the teaching and the preaching of the Bible is so crucial. That's why we're so committed, and this church has been committed from day one, and the elders remind me of it frequently, that this church is all about this book. Because in this book we find our hope And the only means of salvation, here we find the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through the proclamation, the preaching, yes, what Paul even called the foolishness of preaching, that God is pleased to bring His people to Himself. It was after, Paul says, 
that they listen to the message of the truth, which is the gospel to their salvation, that they also believed. You know, Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the word, by the word of Christ, which gives us a third aspect of the means of salvation, which is faith. Salvation also comes through faith. Look at verse 13 again. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also what? Having also believed. Believed. I referred to Romans 10, 17 just a moment ago. It mentions all three of them. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, and that is the word of Christ. And those are the three things mentioned right here in Ephesians 1.13. Christ, the Word, and faith. Faith is the means by which we appropriate God's sovereign work of salvation in our hearts. The evangelism explosion presentation of the gospel describes grace as God extending to us the offer of the gospel. And faith is us reaching out to take that which God has offered to us. We must believe the gospel. Throughout Scripture, there is a tension between the sovereignty of God on the one hand and the will of man on the other. Folks, that is a tension the Bible does not attempt to resolve. It simply holds those two realities before us. God is sovereign, and yes, man has free will. God chooses some to salvation, but man is responsible for embracing the free offer of the gospel. That is simply a biblical paradox, and we must embrace both aspects of it. God is sovereign over salvation. How can you read Ephesians 1 and not come away from, for, with that conclusion? God has chosen some to salvation, verse 3, or verse 4. He has predestined us to adoption as sons. And yet we must believe the gospel and trust in Jesus for our salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 for just a moment. In verses 8 and 9, Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near your heart, near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Then verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, faith is our response to the sovereign work of God, the sovereign grace of God, as the Holy Spirit draws us to salvation, giving us new hearts, enabling us to believe and to receive and to exercise faith. And so in verse 13, we really have the threefold means of salvation. It's Christ, 
word that folks no one is saved without the three. Well, second, we see the guarantee of salvation. One of the blessings that we derive, I believe, from Ephesians as a whole and from Ephesians 1 in particular is this deep sense of assurance of salvation. But again, our assurance of salvation doesn't come from anything that we have done, but only through what God has done. God planned, again, God accomplished, and God applied our salvation. And then He guarantees. He guarantees it. Remember what Jesus said in John 6? This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose Nothing. You hear that? This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose not one. But will raise Him up on the last day. And then, of course, in John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will what? Never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Salvation is guaranteed by the Word of God to those whom the Holy Spirit calls and those who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That is the promise of God's Word. We have God's guarantee. And it's the Holy Spirit who guarantees it and makes that guarantee real. Look at, again at verse 13. Again, Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him. How? With the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. There's that phrase again, in Him. You were sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who makes our salvation secure, and who gives us assurance. Let's think about those two analogies for just a moment. In, in verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit is called a seal and a pledge. A, a seal can be used in several ways. Can it? We use that word in different ways. Uh, a, a seal can, used to be, can be used to authenticate something. If you receive a letter from the governor of the state of Mississippi, somewhere in that letter, it's going to have the stamp of the, of the seal of, of the state of Mississippi. And, and the reason that's on there is to verify, to authenticate that that letter is truly from the governor and that the message in that letter is indeed from him. Another way that a seal is used is to identify something. A brand placed on an animal is a seal. It's a mark of, of ownership, of identity. And also... A seal is used to make something secure. You're going to send a letter. What do you do before you mail it? You, you seal it. And the reason you seal it is to make it secure. Make sure the letter didn't get out for one reason, but also so that no one reads it except the person who has 
authorized to, to open the seal. When Jesus was crucified and, and buried, what did the Roman authorities do? They, they, they placed a seal against the tomb. They, they made it secure so that no one could come and, and take away Jesus' body. Well, actually, each one of those meanings of that word can be applied to our salvation. You see, the Holy Spirit seals to our hearts the authenticity of God's Word. How do we know this is the Word of God? It's by the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because He, he seals it to our hearts. That this is true. And because the Holy Spirit verifies that, authenticates that to us, we, we believe it. We know it. This also, the Holy Spirit also is sealing to us, marks us, doesn't he? He may brands us. What does Romans 8 tell us? Those who have the Spirit of Christ belong to Christ. goes on to say, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. The discerning mark of a believer, folks, is that he, he possesses the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts and our lives. It's, it's a seal, a mark, a stamp that we belong to Him. Also, the Holy Spirit sealing us makes us secure. He guards us. He protects us. And He makes sure that seal is never broken. And then we get safely to our heavenly home. The Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. But now look at verse 14, where it says the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge, a pledge of our inheritance. A pledge is a down payment or a guarantee. A pledge is kind of like an earnest money. Someone puts down on a house. Some of you are hoping that you'll get earnest money soon. And that earnest money is a promise that they're not just talking about buying your house. Look, we're sure we want to buy the house. So sure we're willing to put down money to guarantee our commitment to purchase it. An engagement ring functions the same way, doesn't it? When a young man proposes to a young woman to ask him to marry her, what does he give her? He gives her an engagement ring. What is that engagement ring? It's a token, a symbol of his pledge to her, his guarantee to her that as God sovereignly intervenes, he plans and has every intention to take her as his wife. So the Holy Spirit is for us. He's the down payment. He's the earnestment. He's the pledge that We've got a little bit of the inheritance now, but boy, we will get it all someday. He's the pledge that what God has promised to give to us, we will receive. And then third, we see the goal of our salvation. And here Paul gets repetitive. Paul does that sometimes, but you know, the Bible repeats things because they're important. And the Bible, God repeats things because he knows we're slow to learn sometimes. Rep repetition is the key to learning. There have been several themes that have kind of been repeated 
in this first section of Ephesians. And one of those is redemption. You look back in verse 7, it says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Repeated now in verse 14. All this that God has done, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It says is with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Folks, Ephesians 1 tells us this. Redemption began in eternity past. It continues all the way into eternity future. And because the sovereign God is over it from beginning to end, that's why you can be secure in your relationship with Him. It's His redemption, the redemption of His people, those whom He chose before the foundation of the world. Redemption. But there's another theme that's run all the way through this section. And we see it repeated again here at the end. And it is at the ultimate goal of salvation. Let me say it again. The ultimate goal of your salvation is to bring praise and glory to God. That's where Paul began back in verse 3, wasn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Begin with this great note of praise. Blessed be God. Praise be God. And it ends the same way here at the end of verse 14. To the praise of His glory. And what do we see in between? Well, if you look back at verses 5 and 6, we see that in verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And down down to verse 12. We see it again to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Your life, your life from beginning to end through creation and through redemption is to bring glory to God. The first question of our catechism is this, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Why have you been placed here on this earth at this time? It is to glorify God. Through your faith and through your life. No matter what comes your way, no matter what circumstances you encounter, no matter what God lays on you, and who knows what God is going to lay on the church in the coming days. Our chief end is to remain focused upon Him and to glorify Him. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. Read some of those Stories of the martyrs of the church. Men who and women who gave their life for their faith in Christ. What are they doing when the, when the, when the match is lit? 
What are they doing when the, when the axe falls? Almost without exception, they're giving praise to God. Glorifying Him. That's our chief end. And we need to be praying now as a church that God would give us the grace to do it no matter what comes. That we would glorify Him. Our salvation is to be the glory of His grace. We're about to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That the sacrament shows more clearly than anything else outside the Word of God itself. That redemption really is through Christ alone and the shedding of His blood. What's on this table tells us indeed that salvation is not because of anything that we did but only because of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. This table represents to us the fact that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. What's on this table tells us that Jesus did pay it all. And that we do owe it all to Him. As these elements are passed, yes, you ought to, you ought to think about the spiritual blessings, benefits come to you through the work of Christ. But there ought to be in your heart a real sense of, of praise and thanksgiving of giving glory to God because of what He has done for you in providing salvation for your soul. And so, when we come to this in just a few moments, receive this sacrament with joy, with humility, with gladness, with repentance, and with praise and thanksgiving in your heart. To God the Father, who planned your salvation. God the Son, who accomplished God the Holy Spirit who applies it and guarantees it to your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the privilege we have of looking at it together. And I pray you take these verses and by your Holy Spirit apply them to our hearts, help us to grow in our faith. More than anything else, help us to be attentive, glorifying and praising you with all that we are and all that we have, especially with the salvation that you've given to us in Christ. And to that end, we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.